Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. By some margin, the most popular episode of the Drive Nation podcast so far was the one all about Porsche's very famous rear engine sports car. You know the one I mean. Um, no, I, sorry, sorry, Dad. Could you, what, which one is that? The, it's, the, it's, it's got the engine in the back. Engine four, in the four back. Four seats normally, yeah. Four seats, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, just remind me what its name is. It's, uh, it, it, it adds up to uh, 11. Okay, okay. <laughs> Should we explain? <laughs> <laughs> we're, okay, so what, what we're banging on about, we're, <clears throat> we're going to record another podcast about Porsche road cars now, um, but it'll be about uh, the company's other road cars. In fact, we're going to try not to mention that more famous Porsche sports car at all. You know the one I mean. With the, the one that adds up back. to 11. <laughs> exactly. So I think, Andrew, we're going to have a bit of a swear jar. Good. If either of us mentions that car... We have Which to car? Put in a qu- the, you know, the engine in the back okay <laughs> we have to put in a quiz um, okay uh, of, of course the the porsche back catalog is so vast even with that one model removed that we'll never cover everything in an hour so this is very much a topic we can come back to um instead we're going to be talking about three five sixes and nine six eights and Taycans and caymans and nine five nines and so on um but before we actually get stuck in there's just one thing that's bothering me um, and I, I don't know if you can shed any, any light on this, but you'll, uh, you'll at least be able to tell me if it bothers you or not. Um, I, there seems to be no rhyme or reason as to why some Porsches are 918s, and, or sorry, some are 918s and others are 968s. Some are uh, three individual numbers and then some are one digit and then two digits. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that there is a reason for it. I may be completely wrong and, um, you know, Porsche or some Porsche file may come down and shoot me down. But I, th- I think it's just what trips off the tongue um, better. Um, yeah, I, d- I really don't know. Um, the, because it, the, 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 one that, the one that kind of... I still don't know if... I know it's not a road car and this podcast is about the road cars, but I still don't know if the, the Porsche prototype that won Le Mans in 70 and 71 is a 917 or a 917. I've heard it both ways. Yeah, well, I mean, and I, think, I, don't, I don't think either is wrong, if I'm honest with you. I mean, you know, I think it's also uh, regional. So, I mean, over here, uh, we would call the, you know, the 1950s road car a 356. But in America, I'm almost certain they call it the 356. So I, th- I, th- I think the secret is, is just not to get too hung up about it. I think you're right. It does also mean that I can mention the 911 without putting a quid in. Mm. interesting because <laughs> you have mentioned the car okay. and we said we weren't going to do that or did we say you weren't going to mention its name i don't know i'll put 50p in there we go we'll split the difference <laughs> okay okay i'm winning i'm up it's not gonna last long <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, well, I got that off my chest. That was bothering me. Um, but, but let's let's get stuck in then. Let's go right to the beginning. Yeah. Um, what, what, can you remember the earliest Porsche you've driven? Yeah, it was. It's a three five six. It's not super super early. Um, uh, so it's not a sort of you know a nineteen early fifties car. Probably from the mid nineteen fifties. It would have been a three five six. Not a particularly distinguished model. Um, it's something that a mate of mine bought, and I gave him a lift down to where it was, which was in the West Country, and I drove it a bit of the way back. Um, and I can remember thinking, I really can't quite see it was a coupe it wasn't an open car um i can't even remember what spec it was in but it would have been a 1500 or something and i can remember thinking it it, it, it i'm not really being able to understand what all the fuss was about now it may be that, that wasn't a particularly good example but it wasn't it didn't strike me as being you know some kind of you know paragon of brilliance even by 1950 standards um and and frankly you know there are lots of other 50s sports cars um that just as things to get into drive uh, you know i i would have found um probably more entertaining now i don't know whether it's because you know i absolutely loathe volkswagen beetles and because <laughs> it's got a beetle derived engine and it's got beetle derived suspension um and because obviously it's a beetle derived configuration i don't know whether i couldn't kind of get over myself and forgive it for being that close because obviously you know 356 is a, is a world removed from a beetle in, in 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 all ways that actually mattered but it didn't make a great impression upon me um and yeah when when they started making uh, cars in the 1960s with uh with engines in the back <laughs> I, they, they they were rather more to my um to my way of thinking i have driven um a sort of uh a modded 356 um what do they call them? Oh, they had a name, um, which, which will come to me in a minute, um, which uh, was down at uh, Mark Sumter's place, Paragon Porsche, in, um, down in Surrey, Sussex, down there. Uh, and, that, and that was kind of, you know, the car I'd, I'd, I'd hoped um, the 356 would be along because it had a bit more power, a bit of get up and go, it, you know, the suspension had been sorted out. And that was quite good fun. Now, I know that... Um, if you properly sort of sort out a three five six, you know, racing versions, they can be. I've not driven one. Um, they've got that sort of those strange swing axles at the back, so I think they can be really quite interesting on the limit. In fact, I think our friend Chris Harris found that out while racing one at Goodwood. But you know, it, to, to, to me, I, I kind of have um, had the experience, but it's not been satisfactory, and I suspect there's a there's something in there I'm missing. Presumably, then the car is sort of remembered as fondly as it is by some because of its cultural or historical significance. That's probably it, isn't it? Yeah, Rather I, than... think, I, 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 th- I think that's probably fair, and everything that it led to. I mean, it did, you know, start that sort of the Porsche legend of you know being beautifully built and incredibly reliable, and obviously it was you know a rear engine car with a flat formation engine and you know and, and, and air cooled and all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've always regarded it rather as their practice cars, if that's not too patronising, um, before they went on to, um, yeah. Go on. The 901. <laughs> that's very sneaky of you. Well done. Um, Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> Plenty more where that came from. Yeah, we could run through them all, couldn't we? Um, I, I, so I've dreamed up five categories that I think most, if not all, um, of the non rear-engined Porsche sports cars will fit into. So we've got, the, there's the front-engine transaxle stuff, um, yeah. 968s and so on, uh, the mid-engine sports cars, which covers quite a wide range of stuff, uh, the supercars, yeah. the five-door cars, so the Panamera and the SUVs, yeah. um, the EVs, or can we not, the Taycan Can, can we not least. dwell too much on the Panameras and the SUVs? There's not a great deal to say, is there, really? Well... Uh, well, we haven't got much time, have we? And I, th- and I think, as you say, there's there's an awful lot of ground to cover. And um, yeah, I think I'd just rather spend it covering other stuff. Yeah, and the, the fifth one was the EVs or the the Taycan. At least we know there'll be others. But yes, I I think you're basically right. It's the front engine transaxle stuff, the mid engine sports cars, and the supercars that are most interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, what what kind of grabs you most out of that those three different? categories of porsche sports cars well because i've owned one until quite recently i mean i the the, the transaxle cars are I, I i've always found them um really interesting 
um, because you know it all started in when it was seventy five. Um, it was going to be a Volkswagen sports car, which Volkswagen didn't want, and so they created the thing called the nine two four, which was um, not a you know, particularly great car, even um, you know back when it was new. But the way they developed it into other stuff. Um, and the way they turned it into, you know, when I got into this business in, uh, what was it, 1988, uh, the 924S had come out. So that was the first 924, which actually had a Porsche engine in it. Um, and the way they developed that through the 944 and through the, its various versions, the S, the S2, the Turbo, and so on, and then to the 968. You know, the 968 kept going until the mid-90s. So in a typical Porsche way, they found a way of keeping a car, which they hadn't really wanted to you know from the get-go um still good i mean you know 968 club what you've driven one you know when it came out you know it was effectively underneath a 20 year old car but there wasn't anything you could buy which handled better than that um and the way that they have porsche's ability um and it's the same for all their cars um including those that dare not speak their name um porsche's ability to develop their cars is is just extraordinary um and I, yeah, and I really, really like those cars. And obviously, you know, I guess, um, we've got to have some, you know, spare word for the 928 as well. Um, as, you know, another one of those sort of, you know, the front engine water cooled cars, you know, which came out at a time when people just didn't, you know, associate front engines and water cooling and that sort of thing with Porsche. Um, again, another car which, you know, this was the car that was, you know, designed to replace the, uh, what car was it designed to replace? The one with the engine in the back. The one with the engine in the back. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and, and it obviously never quite did it. Um, but geez, I can remember, you know, things like the, uh, the 928 GT, um, and the SE and the, you know, the manual, and manual, you know, if you got it today into a manual late 928, I think a lot of people listening to this would be surprised by how much fun it was and how together it felt if it was a good one i mean the automatics um really weren't that great um but yeah no i loved all them um it was you know they were they were they were fine fine cars and they and they they lasted a long time and to me they are absolutely i mean i think that some people think because they you know ran in parallel with the uh, with with the other car and you know they had their engines in a funny place and they were cooled by strange stuff that they're not really proper Porsches. I mean, to me, those cars have always been proper Porsches and they always were proper Porsches before Porsche started making, you know, SUVs and all those sorts of other cars, which gave other people, you know, a far greater right to question whether they had, you know, the right to call themselves a Porsche or not. Yeah, there's a lot to be said, isn't there, for sticking with a platform or a, a sort of underlying ideology for a couple of decades and letting it evolve and develop to a point where it's just so finely honed that the result is a 968 club sport or something um yeah i mean i mean the, the the slightly flip side of that coin is that you know by the time they were making 968 club sports and that sort of thing porsche didn't really have an awful lot of choice because financially it was it's hard to think of it these days isn't it given you know how well they do but you know they were deep in the doo-doos in the in the mid-1990s um and they just you know they had you know been making cars uneconomically for a very very long time and all their product lines you know if you look at you know the you know the 968 going back to the 924 and how old the 928 was and you know we know how old the other one was you know these were all really really aging product lines and it was absolutely you're right it was a triumph that they'd all been developed to a stage where you know, we as journalists drove them and absolutely loved them, but they weren't selling in big numbers. Um, and, you know, and, and, and Porsche very, very nearly went to the wall. And you know, at the time, in the I mean, I can remember having conversations with, you know, really credible industry authorities, and they were all saying there is no way that Porsche can survive as an independent. Um, but it did, and for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, it really did. Um, so for a while, you owned a 968 Sport, um, yes. So we might have mentioned this before in the podcast that we did about the cars we've owned, but I, I think I remember you saying that the 968 Sport is actually a 968 Club Sport by a different name. There was actually very little difference between them. Yeah, they, they, they are they, they are Club Sports, and I, and I wish when I came to sell it, the world had woken up to the fact. Believe me, I tried hard enough to, um, to let them know. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think they were sold in Germany as 
club sports with sort of lux packs um you know out of the whatever it was the 1300 club sports they were made you know all the sports came out of them there were 300 or so sports and they were they were sold in the uk and i think they sold a few in switzerland as well but basically yes i mean they were absolutely club sports they had club sport chassis numbers um but they were basically just a club sport with you know lots and lots of you know additional goodies in them um but they drove like club sports and they looked like club sports and yeah, it was a, it was a great car. I bought it. I'm not sure I've ever told this story on DN because <laughs> I hadn't driven a 918 Spider, um, and I'd been whinging at Porsche about this for a while. Um, and they had an event up in Scotland at which a 918 Spider was attending, but the only condition of attendance was that you turned up in your own Porsche, <laughs> and I didn't have one. Um, and I just, I just really wanted to drive, to, to drive this 918 Spider, and a mate of mine um, who's a cardiologist on the Isle of Wight. Had had this 968 Sport for years and years and years. In fact, you know, many, many, many years before even that, my brother had owned it. Um, and so I knew this car inside out and I knew that he wasn't using it. Um, so I just said, what do you think? And he went, he came up with a number which seemed eminently reasonable. Um, and I just thought, I'll just get it and I'll go to Scotland. And that means I can drive a 918 Spider and then I'll sell it. But of course, what I actually did was I got it, I drove it to Scotland, I drove it all around Scotland, fell in love with the bloody thing, um, and ended up keeping it for years. Um, <laughs> that actually quite predictable in hindsight, probably. Uh, entirely predictable. But you know, that is the way with those cars. Um, you know, they, once you've got them, they, you know, they, they become very hard to get rid of. And I only did get rid of it because, like so many other cars in my life, it just because of the, the way that you know you know this work is is that you just don't have time to drive these things and they sit in your shed and um you know after a bit their only role in your life becomes that of making you feel guilty for not using them at which stage you know sadly it had to go mm. yeah. great car though so great car. What, what, did, what did you like about it i love the tactility of it um and and the usability of it you know this was a car it was you know it was an old car when i got it um but you know it never went wrong uh it felt really strong um it was it was a nice place to be you know porsche have always done things like control weights so well um and 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 it was the balance and it was always once i'd sorted it out um i put it back on some um oem michelin pilot tires because yeah, for michelin's um classic range it had been on some it had been on a mixture of sort of yokos and toyos and um and they were quite old in the car when i got it and so once i'd sort of sorted that out um and it had got its sort of poise and feel back it was just great i mean it, you know there are very few cars today which just to go and drive down an interesting road i mean it wasn't particularly quick it wasn't quick at all by modern standards i mean i should think a a golf gti of today would absolutely murder it but just the feel of the car and the balance and the poise and yeah it was just it was a car that had been designed by people who got driving and that's what you always get with porsche sports cars isn't it you just get this sense that the people who did this aren't doing it for marketing reasons or aren't doing it you know by the numbers because it has to have a certain amount of power and a certain amount of torque on this that and the other it's being done by people who get out there and they drive cars and they understand what people who share that passion want a car to be like and it's like that it's absolutely right and it's why we recorded that first podcast and it's why we're recording this one isn't it correct cars just sort of resonate um so has the world now woken up to the 968 Sport, or are they still no, lower, lower no, I, than... I, I, I don't think I don't think they have. I mean, I don't think they will ever be as valuable as as club sports, even though they're much rarer. Um, because um, you know the, the, the club sport or the clubby, as we used to call it, it sort of captures something in period. Um, you know, people, idiots like me, you know, waxing lyrical about them, and um, yeah, I don't think the sports will ever be quite regarded in the same. Um, sort of breath of those but but close um but no sadly you know when i think what i what i got for it um i auctioned the car with silverstone auctions and you know it, it was it was a cheap car somebody i don't know where it went but somebody's got themselves a really really good inexpensive porsche and, and actually that doesn't trouble me at all you know because if somebody else is out there enjoying it in a way that i was unable to then good luck to him can you remember the reg plate no because it was a strange one um it was it's SJ- a distinctive color wasn't it it was yes it was uh what was it called it wasn't maritime it was blue um but it was a particular sort of blue it was that very i'm colorblind so i'm not really the right person (laughs) to ask but it was that sort of very pale solid what was it called don't know if i remember i shall leap into the later on the podcast and let you know so given that you're colorblind if anyone sees a red 968 sports (laughs) there's a good chance it was andrews um (laughs) 
<laughs> very good, okay. very good. So do you remember, um, if you think back to when those front-engined transaxle sports cars went off sale, was, was there a sense that they'd never come back? Yeah, I think there was. I think there absolutely was. I mean, we, 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 we were all just wondering, you know, what, what happened next? Um, and, you know, and that's when we got into, you know, what happened next were the, the, the mid-engine cars. And suddenly, yeah, and, and, and then very shortly after that, well, the mid-engine car, I say that, it was the, it was the Boxster, obviously, that came, came, came and came quite a lot later. Um, and then, then came, oh, I so nearly said it. And then, <laughs> okay, uh, can, I say, can I say 996? I think we should avoid doing that because it's a bit of an easy get out, isn't it? <laughs> okay, okay. So, so, okay, so there's my 50p, and so we're equal yeah. now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when those mid engine cars came along, um, you know, I think people thought good things of them. I mean, the Boxster was a very, very clever car, um, not just for what it was, um, but for its positioning, but also everything else that it could be turned into. Um, and it, it sort of kind of got the company from there to the SUV. And then once they had the SUV, then everyone, obviously everything else was just, was just great. But it was, it was the bit of an, an, an end of an era. And, you know, and I found myself missing them more than I thought I would because there was something sort of quite traditional about those cars, um, which I liked. And I still do. I mean, I still think that if you just want a, pure sports car and i know that porsche has utterly confounded this with you know that thing we can't talk about but i still think that you know a front engine rear drive yeah simple straightforward car um is you know is not really you know to be bettered so yeah yeah i did miss them and still do Mm. so if we go back to the boxster um presumably you were an auto car staffer at the time no i think i just left so Boxster was when, 96, 97, yeah, I think? Yeah, around then, that's right. Yeah, yeah, so I think I left Autocar in. No, okay, okay well, I, I, I know this. When I first drove a Boxster, I was working for Motorsport magazine. Uh, but we still had quite a, um, a big road car remit. So I was still getting in everything. Um, and, you know, I liked it. But to me, it, it, it struck me very much as being a car... You know, these days, they always launch cars from the top down, don't they? They always launch the biggest, most powerful one, and then the others just kind of sort of scattered on on, on below. Uh, and this was doing it very much the other way around. Um, and, you know, it was quite clearly a car with a huge amount of potential, which hadn't been realised because, you know, it only had, what's a two and a half litre engine and 204 horsepower. You know, it what this was not a quick car. Um, but you could see the potential in it, and it was nice to drive. And I thought that... It was a canny car. I just thought it was a clever car for its engineering and for its positioning and for its timing. It was the car that Porsche needed at that time. Um, and it, yeah, so it, it tidied them over. It kept them going um, until they could really embark on their you know, big, brave future. Yeah. And so if we wind back just a little bit, do you remember spy shots? Do you remember rumours? Do you remember talk of this new mid-engine thing coming along? Yeah, I think, I, I think it had been fairly heavily trailed. There was a concept and i think the concept was called the panamericana um which would have been oh goodness no someone will be able to tell us but i mean that would have been early 90s and that was a cool looking thing um and that and if you go and you know if you go and google it now and you go and look at it you can see the boxster in it um and you know porsche never do those sorts of things without an extremely good reason for doing them so yeah and we kind of knew that that was the way that they um that they were going because i mean at the time just remember you know porsche had only ever built you know small light two-door coupes and sports cars so the fact that they built another small light two-door you know um sports car wasn't in any way um surprising you know the bit the big surprise came a few years later when they did (laughs) a large you know five-door two and a bit ton suv so we're we're into the mid-engine stuff now um i think I think the first time I drove, so this must have been around 2008, uh, and it was probably a pre-facelift Cayman, uh, the first generation, just before the facelift, because I did the launch of the facelift, which I think was in 2009, I think early 2009. Um, the launch was in Portugal. I was a 22-year-old staffer on Performance Car Magazine. Um, and, uh, I mean, it was quite cool to be on that, 
that launch, but I remember that I, it meant missing out on um, a mid-engined mega test that everybody else, or both of the other guys on the magazine, were doing up in North Wales, and they had all sorts of incredible stuff, and NX, NSX and Ferrari something, probably a uh, 430 then, wasn't it? Um, and they had some amazing, iconic stuff. There's a 205 T16, all, all sorts of other mid-engine bits and pieces. Yeah, it was a, it was a really cool feature, actually. Um, and I, I, I sort of just remember thinking, I'm missing that. I'm not there because I'm here. And it was such a sort of petulant attitude. Um, but I, I loved that Cayman. I, I thought it was such a lovely thing. And whenever I drove one afterwards, I also remember road testing one for the magazine a few months later up at Bruntingthorpe, dear Bruntingthorpe, um, and putting a lap time on it that was just so much quicker than it than I thought it would be given its given its power output compared to some of the other quick stuff that we'd put around that lap, um, and, and mostly because of its poise and its balance and how how excessive you know how how confident you felt confident. in driving that's it right up to the yeah. limit. Yeah, yeah, that's the word. That, that is absolutely the thing. It is. You know, I've said this, you know, actually more pertaining to very, very fast, very powerful stuff, you know, hypercars and so on and so forth. But it's true, it's true down at the Cayman level too. In fact, at any level, you know, if, if, however quick a car is on paper, if, if it's not making you feel confident, if the, if the driver doesn't want to drive it that quickly, you're not going to go fast. Um, and that's always been the thing about Caymans. I mean, I can remember going on, it might have even been the same launch, um, and just having a hoot in it. And, you know, and all those sorts of conversations that we journalists always have over beers back in the bar about, you know, who needs more power than that? It's not about power. It's about feel and poise and balance and everything else. And, you know, the, the Cayman kind of epitomizes that. Um, you know, I can remember at the launch of the original car, um, you know, asking why Porsche didn't even put a limited slip diff uh, on the options list. Um, and Walter Rule said, because if they did, it would be quicker around the Nürburgring than on a 911. Um, you said it. Oh! <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks, Walter. <laughs> oh, well, uh, Walt, good lad. Okay. That's his yeah, fault. Yeah, I said it, I said it, I said it. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, so... Um, uh, and that was the thing with those cars. They were just, you know, because they were light, you know, they're obviously better balanced than the car whose name I've just mentioned uh, because it's, it's, it's engines in a half sensible place. Um, and they're just, you know, they're just lovely, lovely things. And there'll be so many people listening to this who either own or have owned Caymans. And you'll just know what I'm talking about. It's just a car that you get in and you, it feels right. So let me ask you, do you feel, you know, if you had, if there was a Cayman and there was a Boxster sitting there um, and it was a nice day and you had a long drive to do, and the sun was out. Which do you take? Oh, I, and their I, specs I, are identical. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Do you know what? I I just consider myself a coupe kind of guy. I I just I like the cosy feeling that you get with that low roof line. I, I have it. I feel it in my car as well. I just I just love that. And I wouldn't very often choose to have the roof down. Um, occasionally, but just not often at all. So very much a, a Cayman. Yourself? Yeah. I completely agree with you. Annoyingly enough, um, yeah, I just, I just, I mean, every time I drive a Boxster, um, and however good it is, and I really, you know, and, 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 and you know, I don't think I've ever driven a bad one, but um, I'd always just rather be in a Cayman. Um, you know, the thing about a Cayman, I tell you, what, there's, there's something else. There's the thing about, it, and it's a very, very rare that any car um, has this because even in a whatever you want to call it, the rear engine thing. Um, if if you see someone like that driving one of those, you know they may be driving it because they just love driving it, um, but they may be driving it because they want to impress their neighbours or whatever. You see a Cayman, you know, only proper drivers, proper enthusiasts, people who just get it, would drive a Cayman, because if they didn't, they'd drive a you know an Audi TT or something like that, um, and if they were posers, they'd get a Boxster, um, and you know I, I don't think I've ever met a Cayman owner stroke driver who I didn't get on with because you share something. You just, you know, you just know that if somebody has decided, well, I'm going to spend quite a lot of money and I thought hard about this and of all the things that amount of money could go and buy, a Cayman is the thing that I want to spend it on. Then, you know, there are reasons for that. Um, and you, you, it, the people who buy those sorts of things are sort of kindred spirits, I think. What if that Cayman has a four-cylinder engine? Oh, what if that Cayman has a four-cylinder engine? Um, I was actually, uh, I was 
not as appalled by it as as some and I'll tell you why um it's not because I thought it made a nice noise or or or, or wasn't you know sad or anything like that um I know that for a start that it was forced upon Porsche is not something that Porsche wanted to do, but by that stage they they were bought by Volkswagen, which had you know corporate fleet emissions and all sorts of things to observe. So a but but that doesn't excuse it. You know the engine, you know in terms of its noise, um, it's yeah it's it's not a worthy engine for that kind of car. But what it did do, it did two things better than the flat six. Um, The first thing it did was it made sense of the gear ratios because it had some torque. Um, and you'll know as well as I do that, you know, one of the, you know, particularly with the, with the manual cars, the problems with them is that they have very, very wide gear ratios. And if you put quite a small capacity, reasonably highly strong, normally aspirated engine in a car with wide gear ratios, you're always going to struggle with the torque. Um, so it did that. And the other thing it did also because of the torque is it just gave the chassis, um, you know, more work to do. And as we all know, you know, Cayman's, um, have always been, you know, slightly under-engined or over-chassis, depending on which way you want to look at it. Uh, and so you could really drive out of a corner and you could really load it up and make the most of the traction and everything else. So, um, you know, I don't see it entirely as a, you know, it, it, it's not a, pan- you know, that, that engine is not the pantomime villain to me. Um, you know, I'm, don't get me wrong, you know, a four-litre flat six, as they've now put in the Cayman GTS, um, is is clearly the best of both worlds um and you know no one's going to be lamenting the the passing of a four-cylinder gts but you know it wasn't as it wasn't as it wasn't all bad despite what others may have um said thinking about it well thinking about it now from a very selfish point of view i do hope porsche never fixes that long gear ratio thing because at least it gives you and i and people who do what we do something to moan about without that it would be all praise (laughs) and we'd totally look in porsche's pocket wouldn't we People yeah. think that anyway. So, well, I yeah. know, but you know, but but yeah, but, but do you know? What? I think people who think that probably don't spend much time driving Porsches, which you know, you know, you and I are unbelievably lucky to do. They just make, re- I mean, those sorts of cars. You know, they just get those sorts of cars, um, and you know, that we say so is is not our fault. We have to report as we find. Um, I think. I, I think. Fund- I've thought about this a lot, and I think fundamentally, it's a very close alignment between what's important to us in a sports car and what's important to them in a sports car. Well, exactly. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier. You know, they just get it. They understand. You know, I think that, you know, goodness, you know, this is how we've chosen to earn our livings. We earn our livings by, by driving cars. And, you know, if anybody's going to, you know, I'm not wishing to sort of, you know, blow our own trumpets, but, you know, you'd think you'd hope that if anybody would understand or you know, be passionate and love the pure essence of driving. It'd be people like us who choose to earn our livings the way that we do. Um, and therefore, if Porsche kind of tunes in with that way of thinking, then you know it can only be because the people who work there and who tune these things. Um, and it's got nothing to do with um, you know power or torque or grip or anything else. It's all down to the feel and the tune of these cars, um, which can only be done by engineers. Um, you know, highly, highly skilled people, but highly passionate people who just get it and just understand what it is that they're after. Um, and they do. Yeah. And also that the cars are designed correctly from a clean sheet. You know, they're fundamentally right, aren't they? Um, and the results speak for themselves. So we've spoken a bit about the, the four cylinder um, Cayman and Boxster. And so they were badge 718, weren't they? But before that, we had the, the 981. So this was when the the Cayman and Boxster they both grew in size. They, but I think they were lighter actually when you look at the specs, and they were um, for me more striking designs. This was around what 2011? Is it 2012? Maybe 13 around there. Um, they had electric steering, um, all new platforms. Yeah, based on the um, the same platform that they developed for um, the, the other one. one. Yes, the other one. Um, and so I remember doing the, the launch event for the 981 Cayman, um, again, must have been 2012, around there, up in West Scotland, the West, the Highlands on the West Coast, around Applecross. Um, and I remember thinking it was either exceptionally brave of them to base the launch up there or foolhardy or something, I don't know, because the roads are so tricky. For, for one thing, it's absolutely stunning up there from a 
a scenery point of view. I mean, the vistas to to rival anywhere else in the world is absolutely it's breathtaking. But there are, there are some great roads up there, but mostly they're very narrow, often single track, um, and very very lumpy and bumpy. Um, such a workout for a car. Uh, and were it not for the Cayman being so masterfully uh, judged and executed, um, you know, those roads would have shown the car up. Any any other car or a good deal of other cars would would have been shown up by those roads, but not the Cayman. Um, and I, I remember driving a, few, a handful of different 981 Caymans on that event, uh, non-S models and the S, and thinking... A, the car was beautifully balanced. And it, this balance isn't just about performance or about confidence. It can be a, an amazing sensation from behind the wheel when you turn into a corner and you have that sense that both axles are working just as hard to generate lateral grip, you know, to get you around. It's just a lovely sensation to feel wrapped up in the middle of a car between the two axles that are sharing the load. Um, and also how supple and pliant the suspension was over those actually quite challenging roads. Um, I've had a a real soft spot for the 981 Cayman ever since, and it was very much on my shortlist when I bought an Alpine. Um, And sometimes when I clock one, I do think, "Uh, well, maybe I should. uh." But what do you think? Presumably you're pretty fond of that car as well. I am, yeah. Um, uh, You know... (laughs) It, it, it seems to be a car which was just sort of designed for a you know for for a, for, for, for a bloke like me um you know and it, and it says a lot doesn't it that you know the porsche had the confidence to go and launch it in a place like that because you know i always you know i always i go on a launch and every time i go on a launch and it's all just sort of smooth roads you know the the, the alarm bells just start dinging crazily in my head um but anybody who goes and launches anything on really good road roads in scotland i mean you know from the get-go you just think to yourself well you know <laughs> If, if this car isn't good, these guys really are total idiots and car manufacturers tend not to be total idiots. And, you know, and, and then if they, if it is good, you just think, wow, you know, it's, it's behaving itself. It's really, really involving and indulging me on these roads. Um, you know, what would it be like on, you know, on, on, on a fast, smooth road? So yeah. And, you know, Cayman's, um, yeah, I mean, I can remember. I'm just trying to remember really great drives that I've had in Cayman's. And I've been very lucky. There've been a few. There was one in a Cayman R. Um, you know, almost have forgotten that car now because people think of fast Caymans and they immediately think of GT4s. Um, um, but you know, a Cayman R was just. I think we had one on Auto Car Handling Day at Bedford somewhere, and we and, and we had a road route because we we always try to drive cars on the road and on the track. And it wasn't a long route, but it was quite tricky and it was quite difficult. And just I driving know around well, it, yeah. uh, and driving around that road route, and just thinking to myself, there's nothing. There's well, there's basically nothing I'd rather be in because. It was fast enough, you know, if I'd had any more power, I wouldn't have been able to use it. It was sufficiently, you know, compact that I could, you know, chuck it down the lanes without worrying, you know, about a lorry coming the other way, taking the side off it. Um, And the feel and the poise, I just felt so utterly at home in it. You know, the oldest, you know, road testing cliche in the book, isn't it, is, you know, the car becoming an extension of oneself. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it's, it's kind of hard not to start off down that road because that's that's kind of what it feels. You just feel, you don't really sort of feel, oh no, the second oldest cliche is it thinks its way through a corner. Um, uh, and, but, but it kind of does that. You just don't, be, you know, it becomes a completely natural process. Um, you're not sitting there thinking, oh, break point, turn in point. Blah, blah, blah. You're just, you're just at one with the car. I think I can say that. Um, and there have been very few cars of any kind that I felt more at one with uh, than I did in that Cayman R on that road. Mm. Okay, well, let's have a little talk about GT4s because, well, they're they're spectacular cars and they're a big part of the the, the Porsche mid-engine story, aren't they? Um, I think I first drove one um, in, it was north coast of scotland no it was the north coast 500 scotland evo car of the year i think that was 15 2015 it was a brilliant one that an, an amazing lineup of cars um, and we went all the way around the north coast 500 which is just a stunning route with incredible roads um and the cayman gt4 won that up against <laughs> some it, it, much more expensive well more the, powerful car that came, stuff. the car that came second was 675 lt mclaren wow um, off the wow. top of my head, the one that came third was a 488 GTB Ferrari. And in fourth, 
ignominious was a, 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 a GT3 RS. Can I say that? No, I don't think you can. I think you owe me a quid. Oh. Okay. <laughs> right, okay. So it's not just the, the numbers we can't say. Well, okay. No, we, we, oh, we, right. we agreed. We agreed, didn't we? I couldn't say 996, so you can't say GT3 RS. Okay, well, that's 50p as well for you then. Um, uh, well, the balance is totting up. We've almost got a pint in there now. Um, <laughs> we'll have to decide who, who's, who gets it. Um, and, yeah, it was, it, it, that was like a, a very vivid demonstration of how... I mean, the, the Cayman, actually, it's a fairly powerful, a very focused, not exactly affordable car. But up against bona fide supercars, it yeah, was the one that stood out. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's, it remained... Uh, supple like the standard cars although tauter but actually what i loved is the the quality of the damping particularly over the shape of the road so not necessarily lumps and bumps but the shape of the road so if you land into a compression it's like sitting on a pocket of compressed air the the way the suspension just soaks it up and then the body gathers itself back to center very quickly um Uh, and that is where sorry to butt in but that is where the other porsche in your group um, would have suffered because you know that that is set set up for a different environment. It's set up to perform on a track, and so it won't breathe with the road in the same way. Um, you know, on a different environment around it. If you if you've just been on a racetrack, then I'm sure that the the other one would have um, would have done better. But you know, it's horses for courses, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Um, do you think the current Cayman GT4? I mean, it's very oh. very similar in principle. I was, do you... you that, I, I was going to ask you that question because I, 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 I have quite a strong feeling on this. But do you? Um, I, you think the older as... one's better? I do. Yeah, I just do. I'm, de- I... I'm, de- I'm desperate to get the two together. Actually, yeah. I mean, it may be a perception thing. I mean, sometimes you kind of get in the car and you think this, and you think, oh well, it's not, you know. And then you do get the two together, and and, and you realise your mind's playing tricks on you. But you know, I mean, I can remember very similar to you in 2015 or whenever it was, getting the old, the old one and just thinking, oh, what I would give to have one of these. Yeah. You know, if you just said to me, this is what you've got, you know, you've got to drive it every day for the rest of your life. You can never drive anything else again. I wouldn't be that sad about it because it was just such a fabulous thing. I think the only thing which I think it could, it could, it could have had a slightly more exciting engine because I, I think it was basically just a stock um, engine from another kind of Porsche. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I just, you know, the, the current car, I mean, two things happen with the current car. So, um, you know, I got in it and I can remember thinking to myself, well, it is fantastic and it really is good when you're driving it with your pants on fire. I mean, really, really fast on a kind of road that you might get in the north of Scotland or upper Welsh Mountain, wherever. But the rest of the time, it didn't, you know, it felt to me like a Cayman. Um, and so too often it felt, it didn't feel sufficiently special. So that was one thing. And then what did it for me was the Cayman GTS comes out mm, eleven thousand pounds cheaper, um, quicker in well sorry, sorry you know, great sorry fun in all conditions because obviously it's not on Cup Two tires, um, and you know, and because that car is you know is meant to be a sort of a, you know, a daily driver, the fact that it felt you know normal a lot of the time didn't disappoint i suppose uh in quite the same way that it had for the gt4 because you know as well as i do that you know if something is a porsche gt car you know you are expecting it to be super special from the get-go and all the time and the gt4 does have that quality but it's not there when you're just going about your your normal business so yeah given that it's a you know the gts is five you know it's got basically got the same engine and it's a five figure sum cheaper um it is the only Porsche I have driven that I have found preferable to the GT variant. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. So that, that is the Cayman sweet spot at the moment, isn't it? 100%. 100%. Yeah. I've just done a story for um, for our friends at Haggerty about you know, Future Classics, just, just explaining exactly this, that a 4-litre Cayman GTS is is a keeper. It's a real keeper. And, and not just for all the great things that it does, but also because you know I, I think there's a good chance that the next Cayman will be heavily electrified may even be wholly electrified um and you know and here is a car with a manual gearbox and a normally aspirated engine that behaves like that um you know gosh if i could afford it and if i had something i could do with it i'd have one in a heartbeat 
Oh god, I'd love one as well. Without having driven one, actually, it somehow have escaped me. Yeah, it somehow escaped me. I think the Porsche GB will probably have them on. Well, they've probably got them on fleet now, haven't they? So I'll I'll put that right. But it's just in principle that car appeals to me. Um, it's yeah, it, it it really does. I think that I think that could be my ideal car if only I could afford one. Um, well, let's leave the mid-engined sports cars there and move on to the supercars, by which I mean. 959, Carrera GT, and 918. Um, Andrew, we'll, we'll start with the, the first one, mostly because I know that last year, or the year before, you spent a bit of time with a 959. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> it, it came about um, because the 992 was out, and it Can had... you say that? Oh, God. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't say that, can I? God, I'm even worse than you. Um, yeah, apologies. So, well, yeah, okay. So, I'll put in for that. Fair enough. Um, so, there was, yeah. Okay. So, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to approach this from an, I'm going to have to basically not tell the story I was going to tell to, because I can't tell it without mentioning that bloody car. Okay. So, it, the 959, um, has the same, power output the same 0 to 60 time and is also four-wheel drive as a certain other type of Porsche which you can buy today and this this coincidence that basically that a sort of modern everyday Porsche uh, has now reached the level that this what was once the fastest road car in the world back in the late 1980s was so I just wanted to put the two of them together um, and Porsche were bringing a load of stuff over for Goodwood um and i rung them up and they very kindly chucked a 959 on, on the truck um because they had a space as you do um and in typical inimitable Porsche style they got the car off of the off the truck and just gave me the key and i sort of standing around stood around for a lemon like a lemon for a bit wondering what to do next um and they just sort of went well off you go <laughs> um and, and and i just had a 959 to myself for the day it was a, you know it was a, it was a factory car so it was perfect um, I can't remember how many miles it had done, but it was like sort of ten or twelve thousand miles. So it was just beautifully running. But um, and um, yeah, it was. I had driven one very briefly. Uh, Richard Tuthill had one, um, but I hadn't really had a proper go in it. So this was kind of like um, the realization of a dream. You know, some decades in the in, in the making, and it didn't disappoint. I mean, you know, in 1980 when it came out, 87. Um, I mean, it must have just been, I mean, it must have been just utterly ridiculous. Um, for the level of performance, the accessibility of the performance, the technology it had on it. Um, so so what, what were some of the technological highlights that, um, that were present on the 959 um, that were new? Things like um, adaptive dampers? Yes, uh, adaptive dampers. It had, well, I mean, sequential turbocharging. Um, so it had this, you know, and I don't, I still don't really, I mean, I know BMW did it, um, but I still don't really understand why people don't go with, you know, having a, you know, very fast reacting small turbo to spool up at low speeds and then hand over to a big blower once, you know, all the inertia has been, has been taken up. Um, and yeah, and, and also, you know, it's, it's also, it was a proper car, you know, it was, you know, it was a car that um, that won the Paris Dakar. Um, you know, it was a car that, as the 961, competed at Le Mans. I mean, it had an engine. Okay, it wasn't that some people have said, oh, yes, it's got a 956 engine. It didn't have a 956 engine in it, but it was a close relative insofar as it had those water-cooled four-cam heads on it. And it was it was a very, very pucker piece of kit. It had a clever four-wheel drive system on it, um, six-speed gearbox. Um, and yet, yeah, and yet, yeah, and yet, yeah, you get in it and you sit there and you think, Oh, so nearly did it again. <laughs> yeah, um, I thought you might. <laughs> and and you're sitting there, and, and if it doesn't say, you know, it, it says, it's sort of etched in, it says, you know, 959 on the steering wheel. And if it wasn't for that and the fact that, you know, it's got, a, it's got, you know, some strange digits on some strange dials, you could just be sitting in one of those other cars. And on the one hand, you might think, oh, well, you know, they didn't try hard enough to make it special. On the other hand, I just thought that was really cool. Could you just sit there and you're in this absolute nutmobile? And even today, it feels properly fast. I mean, it would it would pull a sub four second, not sixty run, um, which is you know which is still pretty rapid, and do nearly two hundred miles an hour. And this was a car that came out in the nineteen eighties. Extraordinary thing. Do you happen to know if the Bill Gates story is true? I don't even know what the Bill Gates story is. Perhaps you could enlighten me. Well, the story was um, so the US has very particular import rules, doesn't it? You you can't import a car 
that isn't officially imported yourself until it's 25 years old or something. It, I think it's to do with crash legislation or I don't know. But anyway, Bill Gates, he was clearly an extremely wealthy man even back then when the 959 was new, um, living in the US. And he wanted a 959, um, but he couldn't have one because you had to crash one. So <clears throat> you had to do a crash test and pass it and all the rest of it. So he bought two uh, and crashed one. <laughs> so that he could demonstrate, you know. So Bill go, Gates so. homologated the 959 for sale in the US. I've that's, never heard that's, that. That's the tale, potentially apocryphal, or I've imagined it. But it's a good one, isn't it? It's a good one. I thought you, I thought you were going to say he, he, he imported it in component form, because I've heard of that happening. <laughs> you, know, you, can't, yeah, you can't import a car into the States, but once it's in, then that's fine. And so people just import cars in constituent pieces, because it's then not a car, it's just a load of parts. And then once it's in the States... You turn it into a car, and that—I oh, mean—that definitely has happened. Um, but I haven't heard of Bill Gates crashing one. God, can you imagine? So, uh, yeah, so, so the, the world's nine five nine population, and there aren't many of them, uh, was reduced by one thanks to, um, thanks <laughs> to Mr. Gates and his Microsoft billions. Um, uh, so the supercar that came after, several many years after, in fact, um, was the Carrera GT. Now I, I know that somehow, Andrew, you've not driven one. Um, I've I've not driven one. I'm either. ashamed. I'm it, ashamed. It's yeah. It's, well, I, bl- it's I blame Porsche. It's entirely their fault. I mean, you know, it is obviously their their job in life to keep me permanently supplied with with, with wonderful cars. Um, and how they've let that slip through the net, I, I, I've no idea. No, no, all joking aside, um, I'd love to. I would love. To. I mean, it's a it's a really really. I love. I love the idea behind it because, as I'm sure lots of people listening to this will know, it was it was a Le Mans car. That was what it was meant to be. Uh, and then at the last moment, the ACO, in their own inimitable way, just decided to change the rules, and the cars were rendered instantly obsolete. So instead of just going, oh shit, and throwing it away and moving on to whatever they're going to do next, Porsche thought, well, okay, we've done all this work, we've got this car, we must be able to do something with it. I know, we'll make a road car out of it. Um, and I just love that about it. Um, and you know, I I, I know people who, who've driven them, and I understand it's a, it's it's a great thing, but. Um, you know, wonderful bespoke V10 engine. Um, love the look of the thing, um, but no, never had the pleasure. My favourite Carrera GT is the one that's at Porsche's, the small museum in Leipzig, <clears throat> at the at its at its factory there. Um, because there's a Carrera GT upstairs with no bodywork on it, or at least there was when I went. Um, and you you see the the carbon chassis, not just the tub, but the the I guess the subframes fore and aft as well, um, and it looks stunning. That it's it's kind of sinewy, you know the the shape of the the subframes. Um, it, it looks. It, Can you it see looks a racing organic. car in it? Uh, does, yeah. Does it yeah. look like something which was designed yeah. to go around tracks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's absolutely got. It kind of looks like a a Le Mans beach buggy. Um, I'll I'll try and dig out a photo of it at some point because it it's superb, um, and yeah, I mean we have to find a way to put this Carrera GT sort of black hole to fill it, don't we? We need to we need to put that right. Um, the one that you have driven is the 918 Spider. Uh, you've already said that you effectively bought a car so that you could go and drive one. I, I had to buy Scotland. a Porsche to drive a Porsche. Yeah. Um. <laughs> um, talk us through that experience i mean what, what did you discover when you got up to scotland um it was an immensely usable i mean it, it just wasn't what i expected it to be um i thought it was going to be well i mean it is quite a heavy car and i thought that um you know by that stage i'd driven the la ferrari and i'd driven the p1 and you know love both of those and I kind of thought, it, I didn't think it was going to be an anticlimax because, you know, how could it be given, you know, given what it was and the power it had and everything else. But, you know, I wasn't expecting to be blown away by it, but I was, I was. It was, um, you know, at that time, um, it was an amazing thing. Um, and I think it ended up being a lot better than Porsche intended it to be because I think they, um, you know, once they realised that McLaren and Ferrari were coming up fast, I think they probably worked quite quite hard to give it more power and to you know and and, and, and to hone it a bit more. Um, but you know, it, it, it was of the three. You know, I've always said that the P one's the car that I drive around the track. Um, the LaFerrari was the one that I drive on a great road 
uh, and the 918 is the only one of the three that you could consider using on anything like a, a regular basis. Um, and that, you know, that to me, there's a danger there of that sounding like sort of, you know, damning with faint praise. Um, but it's not, um, you know, there are other cars, um, Porsches whose names I can't mention, but you and I could think of, um, you know, were developed largely by our chums in Vicec, which are probably more exciting, more visceral driving experiences. Um, but as a technology sort of showcase, um, and as something just from getting one place to another, you know, at simply absurd speeds, it was amazing. And then on top of that, for its mass, um, and yeah, it was, it was just a surprisingly good thing to drive, surprisingly involving, wonderful engine in it. Um, you know, enormous amounts of grip and traction, but still at the end of the day, back to, you know, you could see a Cayman in there. You could just see that, you know, the things that matter to the people who developed the Cayman matter to the people who drive it, matter to the, who developed the 918. It was still, it wasn't just this massively powerful blunt instrument where they'd just gone, oh, here you go, here's a load of power, you know, you should be happy with that. They'd still honed it. It's still important to them that it drove like a Porsche should. Um, so yeah, um, I mean, of the three, <laughs> if I could put one in my garage, um, if I'm honest with you, it would probably be last. I'd, I'd have the Ferrari first, then the McLaren, and then the Porsche. But um, it doesn't mean that I think it's in any, it was in any way disappointing. It wasn't. I was surprised. It was better than I thought it was going to be. It's getting on. Well, it's the better part, at least, of a decade now since that car arrived. Um, and I suspect if, if we drove one now, we'd just think, it was bang up to date and you know yeah, as though it could have been released a few months ago well there we go i think that is a measure of the mark that without mentioning its most famous sports car well without mentioning it much um we've we've done 55 minutes or so um on porsche sports cars and there's a great deal that we haven't even touched um it's it's extraordinary isn't it the the depth and the the quality of that back catalog um it's it really is quite something um so we'll leave that one there but before we go andrew we need to talk about next week's podcast our 20th um, our 20th yeah which is very uh, uh, you know it's a, appropriate that it should be a sort of anniversary po- um, episode because it's i'm not in it for one thing <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, i we we have a, a super sub uh, as it were you're interviewing gordon murray yeah, in fact, I've done it, um, and um, I uh, I did it last week. Um, but I'm, it's, it's about you know I can say I've interviewed Gordon, and it's about his about the new T T fifty um, supercar, the kind of car that people regard as, as being the replacement for the McLaren F one. Um, and I can't talk about it because the car's uh, launch is on August the fourth, um, and the embargo list at five o'clock, which is when the podcast will go live. So I can't talk about the car itself what i can say um is that gordon um age i think he's 74 now is as fascinating and as interested and as on it um as as he's ever been um and i don't think there's a person in the industry who is just more interesting to sit down with and talk cars about uh, and there was so much stuff to get through uh, and we only had an hour um i didn't talk about racing cars at all we basically i mean we did a little bit on the slr because i was interested in what he thought about that um we did quite a lot on the f1 to get going and then the rest of it on the t50 but i do urge you if that sounds like something you might want to listen to do listen to it not not for the idiot asking the questions but you know just to spend an hour in the company of gordon murray um and that mind uh and to hear his unique approach to doing this stuff um I mean, he's just a fascinating bloke. Um, and it was, it was such a, you know, I, Gordon and I go back to, you know, when I did the original road test of the McLaren F1. Um, and to be able to sit down with him again after all those years and just chat about the car that he has designed to out F1 the F1. I mean, what a great thing to have done. So um, hopefully that'll keep you guys more than entertained for an hour or so. Um, and as I say, it'll go live at five o'clock on Tuesday, August the 4th. It's going to be a good one. Um, I hope so. Yeah. Well, th- uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Please do remember, as ever, to leave a review um, on this podcast. Re- uh, subscribe to the Drive Nation podcast um, wherever you get them. That really does help. 
Um, and also, if if you want to support Drive Nation and help it to become even bigger and better, we're working really hard to do that. You can support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Drive Nation. And everyone who supports us on Patreon gets access, exclusive access to weekly articles, sort of full length articles from Andrew and myself, Andrew and me. Um, and I think we've posted some good stuff um, up there. So please do check out patreon.com forward slash Drive Nation. Um, and we will we will talk to you again next week, or at least Andrew will, with Gordon Murray. Goodbye, everyone. All right, bye. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 